everyone and welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast and I'm joined today by musician and composer Scott Twynham. We're going to talk mainly about film soundtracks because most recently he worked on James Price's Dog Days which was shown at this year's Glasgow Film Festival just on Sunday. First of all, hello Scott, how are you doing? Good Ali, how are you? Really well, thanks. Good. So let's talk about Dog Days first. How did you come to work on that? Um, it was a very, very quick process. I'd worked with the producer, Carolyn, works with Hopscotch Films, and they, it, was a, it was a, I think, one of these co-productions. So there was Channel X and a London-based production company and Hopscotch together with the BBC. And I, I think I was an, one of, I think, a number of names in the hat, and I'd worked on... A few things with Carolyn in the past, uh, Rachel McLean's um, feature Make, Make Me Up, um, mm -hmm. and Carolyn, although not, not directly, was um, involved in Alistair Gray, A Life in Progress um, soundtrack. So I think she I think she pushed for me at least to be be heard, and, and James, she sent two shorts that James had made, um, Boys Night, and I think I'm dropping off Michael and, mm -hmm. and asked me to just have a, a look at it. I thought it was amazing work. And I was in. Yeah, I said, if, if you want me, then I'm in. Yeah. That's how it came about. It was very, very quick. And there, there was a tight, um, a kind of tight deadline. It really had to be turned around within three weeks to a month from that first phone call. Um, and we were just talking uh, before we started recording that it was on on Sunday, as I say, at the film festival, and it got a, a really warm reaction. It did. It was amazing. It was it was completely sold out. It had been programmed in GFT two, and then that sold out very quickly. So they, I'm not sure what film they flipped it with, but it went into the main GFT one, and um, that also sold out. So I think that's about four hundred or three ninety capacity. Um, and it was a, a very warm, like home home crowd almost. It was like a home match. And yeah, I suppose poker on your side a bit. On your side, and, and I think you know James had a lot of people. Obviously, everybody involved in the production from from DOPs to you know dubbing mixers. That everybody was there. So, um, and there was a Q and A with James and a standing ovation, which is very. Very rare for a film <laughs> to to receive. Um, Peter Mullen turned up, who James had worked with on the Skint. Um, yes, yes. Like about this time last year. So yeah, Peter turned up and and gave his support too. So it was a great day. Yeah, people don't know that was the series of short films that was it. Channel Four made them. I think so. I'm not sure that of, of how the, the production, but it was a series of short films um, of which James did one or two or worked with Peter on on one of them. Um, yeah, really, really good introduction to his work. If people, I think hopefully you can still catch them maybe on, on all four. And... I, I think like, like um, the two shorts, I think some of the shorts are on YouTube for, for watching. So um, they're excellent. Like Boys Night and Dropping Off Michael, I think they both won BAFTAs. At least one of them won BAFTA, um, so that they, they can be be seen online. And it's the plans for Dog Days. You might not know this, but to to go elsewhere, or is it coming to TV, or how will people hopefully be able to see it? Yeah, so it's it's quite unusual in that it was made for TV. So right. it it was made. I think the BBC saw it as a a short like mini series. So it's coming out on iPlayer on the seventh of April. As as six like twelve minutes I think, um, episodes. So it's coming out an episodic, and this was a sixty-minute edit which was shown at the festival. It's like a broadcast version, so that that will be broadcast on BBC Scotland. I think also in April, but I don't have a date date for that yet. But it will drop onto iPlayer, um, as I say, seventh of April. So when you find out that you're going to be involved, how does what's the process? Is it different every time? Yes, completely different. Um, a lot of that, I suppose, it depends on depends on the project, how far advanced 
the the shooting and editing is. Um, if if it's a locked cut and there's a tight deadline, I I know there's not there's not too much time for me to what I might call pre-composition or, or or to think or, or research or read. Um, you know you have to get into the writing quickly. Mm. Um, with with something like there might be, I'm always looking for limitations or 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 a way in. So I spoke to James. He wanted the score. We talked about you know instrumentalists. Is it something he saw as being like a hybrid score, part electronic, part like say small string section or whatever? But it was just um just electronic. So it was what I could do on, on my own. I knew I didn't. It was a it's a gritty, um but but blackly comedic, and. And I knew the music couldn't go down the the comedy line. That the music just had to support the drama, yeah. so it had to be fairly dark in in places. That there's 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 themes of you know addiction, death, etc. And the yeah, I I knew I didn't want to go down a a piano and strings route. I wanted it to be more electronic, but organic electronic, and I just kind of limited the instrumentation accordingly. Yeah. And how collaborative is that kind of relationship? Again, it probably changes every time. But in this case, how did it work with yourself and James? Did he have ideas about how he thought it should sound? I think he 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 very much just just left it to me. We had a chat. We spotted it um, with the editor, uh, Mark Fraser. The three of us just like this on a on a Zoom. So before. I, I never met James until after most of the music was written. Um, we just went through it on screen, taking notes of where music would be would be in and out. Um, I went away, started writing. I would send maybe three, maybe spend maybe first week writing, maybe three or four cues, send them over and and wait on on feedback. In James's case, it was it was seamless. He he, he just he he went for which is quite unusual what I did for first time. Um, so there was only one big cue that, that come back and it's one of the best notes I've ever got. He, I think he felt that he wanted to, and, and some di directors are the same, they, they, they feel bad that they can't articulate things or, or talk musically mm -hmm. in terms of technically what they would would like. But to me, that's that's not as good as somebody that just talks emotionally about it or it's it's too sad it's too happy it's too fast it's too slow so his comment was i, I just wanted this to be more more like tangerine dream on speed but <laughs> i took the, the expletives out out there but the um yeah i'm just basically the license telling me to go go a bit madder on it you know, so yeah uh, but, that, but that's really interesting because it means that i guess rather than any specifics from someone who has the musical vocabulary, there's interpretation there that gives you a space to kind of interpret it as you want. Yeah, it's not, it's not, not, it's not somebody talking in in musical terms, but music is a, you know, what what's one person's sad music might another person might get a bit of joy. So it's so subjective; it's very difficult to know, and you just hope you have that, the the understanding with the director or, or editor who are, who are equally as important. A lot of the music I've worked in various ways. So music, it might be going more back and forward with the, the editor who then slots my music in and will distribute to the director. And then you get feedback kind of that way, or maybe you get feedback from the editor. If the director really trusts the editor, they'll trust their musical like taste and judgment. So it, it's different every time. But in, in this case, it was it was really, really painless. And it was nice that it was, I've been on projects that are drawn out, which is really good if you're in early and you're seeing early rushes. And the film I did last year, Ride the Wave, I was in early with that and I was having discussions with Martin, the director, maybe 2018, maybe started writing in 2020. Then it was halted and then finished in 2021, and then it comes out in 2022. So that was a, a long process. And there's good things that come about that and that you can research, you can you can experiment, you can make mistakes, you can go back, you rewrite. Whereas this was 
okay, we have we had a call mid mid October and it's to be finished mid November. Yeah, <laughs> you've you've not get time for that. And I was wondering, you know, you were in the audience as the film was being shown. Can you enjoy a film when it's your work that's accompanying it as well, or are you listening closely? What's the situation? Yeah, no, I I, I love it. I think that's the payoff for for composers, and I think for other people I know who who write. Um, I think that that premiere is the is the party or, or the payoff for probably a period of of hard work. Or yeah. I I always go through this same. Oh, it's like like an arc of. You know, you, you get the gig and you, you you celebrate or you have a drink, you think, oh, I've got a nice project coming up that'll keep me busy. Then the next morning you think, ah, I need, yeah. how, how do I start this one? And then, then you have a mild panic until you get get going. And once you've got your first few pieces of music, maybe you know you're on the right path, then I really then it becomes more enjoyable. But really once you're in in a premiere, you know you can't change it. So I'm not I'm not listening as attentively or, or not as critically as I am in every, you know, if something comes back from the dubbing house, I'm still listening very closely to fade-ins or fade-outs or is that, you know, because, you know, you can change things. Yeah. As in, in, a, in an opening, I, I begin seeing a lot more, hearing things that I might not have noticed before and just enjoying it, enjoying it more as a, as a complete enjoying everybody else's work. Yeah, seeing how it all comes together at the very end, yeah. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about some of your other work? You mentioned Ride the Wave there, and that's, uh, I mean, it's a fantastic soundtrack as well, but its it seems to me it was the, you say you were writing at the start, and I think you can probably feel that that's the case. Do you feel that you were integral right from the beginning in terms of your music? I, I think so. I'd worked with Martin on his previous, um, previous film, and we got we got on really well, and and he I knew he was following Ben, the surfer. He'd spoken to me about it, what his plans were, um, and then I, I was in early, so it was almost after a first um, assembly, they call it. So so the film will be assembled, but it, it jumped around so so much just to how we tell the story and. With documentary, it's not like working off script. So I, I was working on it and speaking to Martin before Ben decided he he wanted to go and ride the big wave. So my man had no idea where the film was finishing. Yeah. So he, he thought he was telling the story of potentially Scotland's first surfing um, participant at Olympics. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think something was going into Olympics, or and that that was his thought. The best possible, you know, outcome for this would be Ben competing, and I think that's where he struggled. You know, I I know we he got it made, but I know that and he pulled in funding from different places. But it, it was a real, it's a hard thing with documentary because you don't have that yeah. end point. So it's really really difficult to for financiers to. You know, turn around and say, "Well, what is this?" But yeah. as soon as soon as Ben decided he wanted to flip from competition surfing to riding big waves, and then they went to to Ireland. You, you've seen the film. You know, you know what happened. But I won't say too much in case yeah. people people haven't. Um, then I remember Martin coming back from that trip and saying, "I think we have our, I think we might have our our end." But even then, they didn't know if there would be more filming and. Mm. He'd been following Ben for four to five years, and I think he just felt it had to finish somewhere, or it could, it could just keep going and going. But I, yes, I was in LA. I I I wrote I, and and a film like that is so so daunting when you just watch it in silence. Yeah. Um, thinking where do you where do you start, and. Often it's a, a, maybe identify two, three key key scenes where music has to tell the story, and then I'll just focus on a small small section. So I was writing some themes, some pieces like yeah, way back, and and a few of those kind of stuck and became became the soundtrack. 
and then developed. And as you go through, you find other things. So then the first things you write, then I go back to and, and you incorporate maybe the things you found a bit later on. So it, it, it was a very, um, it was a really good experience as a, as a composer to have that, that time and just to be able to, to change and adapt and, and, and tinker the, the way the story, story went. I think that I, I wrote about five or six openings, for example, it kept changing. <laughs> it's it's such an interesting to hear you say that because watching the film it kind of is one of these things that proves that real life is something stranger than fiction because you know you just think it's a really moving film because you've got this pool of the parents who want the best for their son but yet what might be the best for their son could be extremely dangerous, you know, and I won't say any more than that, but, you know, you've got all of that emotion in the film, and I think if that was scripted, folk might say, oh, there's, you know, there's too much of this, there's too, but that's what real life is sometimes, there is that pull in the different directions, and as he gets towards the culmination of the film, yeah, especially if it's not going where the director thought it was going, then you have to take on board that as well, do you? And I think it, it was a big that everything starts in, for me in conversation and, and writing. And before starting any music, I'll just you know do some writing on what it what I think it is, and then maybe take that to the director, and 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 we'll discuss it in, in detail. And it's it's not a it's not a surf, we never saw it as a surfing film. Yeah. It, it was a family story with a backdrop of surfing. So that that completely changed the things. It wasn't going to be an action adventure surfing score. We we knew we didn't want any kind of surfing music cliches. It, it was a it, the music had to. I mean, and Martin's really wanted it to represent Ben's journey and what was inside his head, and he's got lots of other worries in his life and at school or issues with with bullying and and whatnot. And I think the um the music hopefully helps subtly just support that family story or his parents anxiety about what could happen or even for the music to suggest what could happen without being directly and those, those were decisions i thought i used some some organ throughout and because of the, the images are so spectacular yeah. i went in all guns blazing on these shots of the waves and the cliffs it, it it's like the music's trying to compete with mm -hmm. how spectacular those those images are and 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 when I went very small or almost like chorale or, or church music like you, you're suggesting maybe what what could potentially happen while supporting the image as well so th these were all all just conversations and things we were we were trying. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, you couldn't have some kind of big point break, just you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so another one that you mentioned that you worked on was Alistair Gray, A Life in Progress. And I, I mean, with proving that everything is different, this must have been very different again. Totally different. And I think that it was such a unique little world like like Alistair's world is so so fascinating and I was aware of his artwork I'd read some of his writing but that that on that one I was in early enough to at least give myself a few weeks of of research and writing and reading and and rereading Lanark and then the 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 tale of of Lanark where Alistair like talks about his life and growing up and all his his influences and then that played a, a big part of how I decided to to write the the score or or what it would be and and all this merging of like uh, fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen and, and and this all this magic but then this real element and thinking how I how I could do that with. The, the means I had in, in my studio with a few players as as well. Um so that that was a an amazing project to be 
Peak Park Og. And that was probably coming on for a decade ago. And I still, there's the Alistair Gray archive. Yeah. The now the Sasha, who was his gallerist, runs that, and people that there's a film been made for that this year that uses some of the, that soundtrack, mm-hmm. and people still come to me. And Alistair's friends, his niece I met last year, and it's so lovely that people say they listen to that, and it 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 makes Alistair feel closer to them, or or still, you know, alive. For them, so I think in that in that way, probably more than any other project, I feel quite proud of that one. If it elicits those, still elicits that emotion in people who who listen to it, because it's got um, samples of his voice on it. Was that your idea to do that, or was that did that come from the film? No, that that was. Um, I felt when. Again, like every project, I would just think of supporting the image and supporting the film. It was only after the after the film um, came out, then then I review like the musical material, and I thought, you know, it it could work as a a standalone thing in the same way that Ride the Wave. Yeah, that, that that's probably the, the next one, but not. A lot of things that I, I do, I think, well, that won't hold together as a record or it's too disparate or there's too many different elements. So um, if it has its own world and can hang together, then I'll think of putting it out. I had spoken to Kevin Cameron, the, the director of using Alistair's voice in some way, and a lot of the compositions started with sampling, uh, but sampling from the film footage mm-hmm. itself. So that that was a real. There was some some lovely scenes with Alistair talking about the the characters he was writing for the mural at Hillhead, for example, and and that just sampling his his voice, just repeating those. Like I thought, that's a it's a list song. It's just one of these songs that 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 could be a list. And and then thinking I would start that composition with just recording, doing a circuit of the. The underground, um, the subway, and written recording that journey, and then editing that and trying to base a structure around that with these words, and 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 that kind of influenced the 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 music, which eventually eventually came. Um, but I would say, yeah, it, it's so such a unique thing, and and we got to play the soundtrack in in Oren Moore. Oh wow! Um, Alistair was in in attendance and they they showed the film you know under his kind of masterpiece of a, a ceiling so that was a very special evening it was uh it's a great space i was at the gray day event that was on a couple of weekends ago I mean, a family thing i couldn't make it along to that but that, that looked amazing and it really was and at the end of the night i went up to speak to someone on the stage just to say how good they'd been and you got that view from the stage of the whole thing, and you think, how are people concentrating on what they were doing? Because it's quite stunning. Oh, it's incredible. Um, and yeah, I, I think were he alive and and fit enough, he'd still be tinkering with it, and he'd, he'd still be changing things and saying that's not right, and this has to be bigger, and you know. Not many people get to leave such a legacy in their city, not just in their city, but in their locale. You know, you think that he's got the heavens above and he was often drinking down in Oranmore having a pint underneath this thing yeah. that he kind of created. It's, it's something very special. Oh, it's very special. And I think on a on a global scale, I, I know that I met a few people up from London at the festival that had been going round doing a tour of Glasgow at the, the weekend and were talking about Alistair, but they they said they saw his artworks for the first time, but they weren't aware of him as an artist. Right. They were aware of him as a novelist. And I think that that's, he's probably, you know, known for being a a, a respected novelist in, in the rest of the world, as in Glasgow, his, his artwork and be it on the at Oren Moore or his, his murals and his, his work at Hillhead Underground. It's so part of our life. <laughs> That's just what uh, uh, they were saying is that you come often when you're going through an underground station, you're rushing to get through it and get out and meet someone or whatever. 
But I mean, again, just to take a step back and look at that incredible mural on Hillhead, it's, it's something very special indeed. And I think you're right. The Strathclyde University, a few couple of years ago, maybe last year, did an, uh, one of their Alistair Gray, uh, not festivals, but uh, conferences, where they tried to bring the two sides together, you know, to try to, because they both feed into each other. He obviously did things for his uh, books, you know, he did a lot of illustrations for his books. He did illustrations for other people's books, covers and things like that back in the day. And I think you're right, the balance in the city is more... We see him as an artist and a writer, but hopefully that might get kind of... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, are there other projects that you're particularly proud of in terms of film soundtrack that you've done? Um. Yeah, there was one last year I did called Alone in Venice, which hasn't come out yet. Um. It was... I, I think the problem it has is it's about 25 minutes so it doesn't quite, it's a short film, but most short films that get um, screened in lots of festivals are 15 or 10, 10 minutes. Um, and this was one based on writing by Colm Toybin. Oh, yes. Um, so based on a bit of writing I did for the London Review of Books, I think he, he was researching his book, his Thomas Mann book, The Master um, in Venice during the the pandemic and right. uh, the filmmaker robbie fraser yeah i don't know do you know robbie is he a little bit yeah he he had the idea that he wanted to during the pandemic film places that were normally rammed with with people but but film film them deserted right and venice being um like one of those those places so his idea was originally just to try and get to venice take a take a camera and and film it during the the pandemic and then he discovered Holmes' piece of writing in the london review of books about his just an essay about a quite poetic essay about his his time in in venice you know he went to the the places that like man's hotel and death in venice and it's such a beautifully short thing robbie couldn't get there but used a friend who's based in paris Lars bloomers to shoot it and direct it um and and i did i did the score it's like a string quartet and piano so hopefully that will will see the light of day at at, at some point but it's, it's such a uh just i think uh a historical record as well as being a kind of poetic look at, at, at what it means and Tom like contemplates I suppose looks at the kind of deep history of, of, of Venice and, and going back to plagues cholera and and then you know the the the, the character that plays plays Colm walking around with the mask on you, you're in you know you're, you're in the middle of a another one so it's yeah. you're back at thomas mann's time where, where they're, they're dying of cholera or you're looking at the tintorettos and and you know he he died quite late in life during the um the black death and, and it's like really um fascinating film yeah that sounds amazing every project i come to there's a there's elements like rachel's film Mm -hmm. is uh, i i was i i would say i'd proud to be involved in in that and, and score that film and she, her work is in, incredible i i agree i think she's a, an amazing visual artist people if they don't know her work they might know her portrait of billy conley which is in the bars on the side thing but uh her yeah her films are really worth checking out yeah i would check check them all out and that, that that's maybe an example of one that the score was so so unique and, and you're having to as a composer you're having to like <laughs> put yourself all over the place because i'd be writing like a like a, a folk song or some like parody of of orchestral like rom-com to like a techno track to whatever so it's sort of it it, it it really it really tests your 
your chops, but if I was to put all that together in, in a record, it just wouldn't, I don't yeah. think it would tie together at all. It has to be, to make sense, it has to be with the visuals. And that, that was one I was nervous about doing because I know Rachel's such a, a unique artist and has an incredible vision about what she wants to to create and I thought going into that that I, this could be very tricky because if she has the same detail orally that, yeah. that she has visually then this could be a very hard hard gig uh, but she was absolutely the the opposite her her concern is is the visual and and story and what she wants to to say and uh, and we got on great she just said do you know again to do what you want uh, and most of the time we got it right sometimes there was maybe a rewrite on a few cues but i think it was a, a really nice process and to show a film like that at the london film festival and see see the reaction to to that was brilliant and is that something that people can see elsewhere? Is that about, you know? I don't know. I, I don't know if, because Rachel, I mean, her, her concern, I, I guess I don't want to speak for her, but I think her concern is is in gallery or, or having her work in in galleries. So that film also played at the National Gallery in London and that, that would be more than cinemas or film festivals. Her, her concern will be... These are gallery pieces rather than... Yeah, and so I I don't know. It was an arena. I know I know it was um, broadcast under the the arena banner, but I don't know if that's still still available to, to watch on any of the streamers or um, you know iPlayer. I'm not sure. What was I mean, the name again? If people are looking for it. Called Make Me Up. Make Me Up by Rachel McLean. Yeah, I think I, I did see it at the time. Now that you mention it, and. Uh, if people can get to see it, then then they should. But that's interesting that it's mainly a, a gallery piece of work. Did that change the way that you approached it, knowing that was the case? No, not really. I think it was, um, it was just a case of finding the music to to work with it. I, I won't I won't even try and explain the 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 concept. Again, it might ruin it for yeah people who who maybe don't know Rachel's work, but. It, as I say, feel maybe like parody certain certain things. She's in the film herself, dressed up as a um, a character, and she'll design all the costumes, all the the backdrops, working green screen, and it was just finding the right the right tone for the to support it. The reason I ask that is because you have also done uh, work for the theatre as well. And is that something different again? That's a, that is something different again. A very different process, and it's like I I think you know I started working in theatre and film about the same time. Theatre I seemed to work more in the theatre about a decade ago, and then it slowly kind of moved to working more in more in film. Um, but in in, in the theatre, obviously. It's a more social um, environment, yeah. And although films a collaborative environment, you're maybe working with a small amount of people. It could be just one other person that you're going back and forward with. And in the theatre, you're 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 having your your meetings, and, and your jumping off point might be the set, or the you know speaking with the lighting designer, or the or the costumes, or you know, whatever you're in the rehearsal room or read-throughs, you're, you know, it, it, it's a it's a balance. You may be in in rehearsal room more often than not in the first weeks of rehearsal. Then I disappear to write. Then you come back with, with the music, and it obviously depends. Theater as a, as an art form, is obviously live. So if I can, I will always try and push for live sound or, or live music. And and when that happens, that that that's a that's a really lovely thing, particularly if I've got a a budget to bring in other players, and and then just just to play with other players. I'm not the most natural um, performer, I think. Although I come from a band background, I'm 
I think I've found my niche in, in writing for, for film or being a studio musician. So I don't I don't feel like performance was was ever like I guess my the most important part of my my practice. Mm-hmm. But when I do do it, and particularly when I play with other musicians, I get such a hit from it that yeah. I think, why do I do I do this more often? <laughs> and I know that you were saying that Alistair Gray, um, Grady last week, Joe Lorian played, yeah. and on the last, just before the pandemic, we did a did a show with Birds of Paradise Theatre Company for Edinburgh International Festival called Purposeless Movements. Right, and I. And Jill, Jill came in on that one, and we performed it to together, and, and that that I get a big kick out of of that. So both both singing, Jill on guitar and and violin, and me on keys and guitar, and it was just great fun. That so that kind of live thing, I suppose it's 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 in the moment. Is is it like being playing in bands, or is it a separate thing? Because it's theatre, you know, it's a kind of it will have a start and a stop and a small run, but I guess being in bands is constant until until it stops to be. Yeah, until it stops to be, yeah, yeah. And, and um, in the theatre, it is different because the focus isn't just on the music. This was, any time I've done the performed, it's more likely to be for a dance or a movement. Piece where, where music plays an important role and less so for a drama where where music is underscored or, or subtle. So for th- this piece, it, it, the, the stories were told primarily through music and movement. Mm-hmm. That that made the the difference and, and just having um ha- having a, I think sound emanating from something that you can see the, yeah. the source is is far more like rewarding as an audience member than than just playback through the the speakers. So. Uh, absolutely. I went to see a play recently called A Mother's Song, which oh was, yes, Ben's. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the band, I, I, Finn, I'd spoken to Finn and Tanya, who were director and musical uh, director about it, and they said the band's going to be on stage. That was very important for Finn that yeah. the musicians should be on stage. And I was thinking, how's he going to do this? Because there's dance and there's all that. But they had them above the That's stage. So and it, it was just, as you say, to have the live music being played while all this was going on. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's just, it just another layer of theatricality. It, you know, it's, it's something to engage in and watch and what you get in every performance. It's different, and so every performance musically will be different too. It just makes makes sense, yeah. And you also release your own solo music that isn't for film or or, or uh, stuff like that. And I was wondering, because a lot of it's quite different, you know. It, it, it's, it, I think you could probably, I could probably say that's a Scott Twainham album, but they are quite different from each other a lot of the times. What inspires a project? For you, when you think I've going to make an album uh, of these songs or music, I, I, yeah, I I don't know. In in my early career, it just seemed to happen. So my my first records under the name Metro Vavan, and then while I was in in Looper, just seemed to to happen. And and in my early twenties, or you know, things I think it's just an amalgam of everything you listen to and absorbing so much music, it it almost comes out without too much conscious thought just now I find it much more difficult to to start and I'm, I'm trying to in between projects I have another writing project album project on so the last album project I did was called Textura which was just really I, I'd gone back to study at the University of Glasgow composition mm-hmm. I'd written I started experimenting in various um it could be like serial composition or algorithmic composition and uh, writing a lot of, of music on the page, not necessarily to be performed, but more to be marked or a- analysed. And, and I came out of that, I think having, having got a lot from it, but I really had a, a strong desire to do something that was limited by my own musicianship and, and not be writing for 
for other people. So, so my main, that was the main impetus for the last record was to, to focus on the piano. I'd been interested in the, just, just the piano as an instrument as well and thinking about its weaknesses of, you know, as soon as you hit a note, it, it dies away. You can't, you can't swell like you can on a stringed instrument or a brass instrument. Um, and I, I, I'd always liked the, the electronic bows for, for guitars. And I just started just experimenting with, with bows. I think people have done that before. It's nothing. I, I realize it's not something completely unique, but I just tried to make these textures and experimental sounds and, um, I, I guess in the way that that Cage does, or somebody like like Hauschka preparing the piano, and and just, I, I'd intended to make an album that was more abstract, drone based, mm -hmm. and and ambient music, but my limitation was all sound would come from the piano, right? And then while I was at the piano, I think my maybe my melodic sensibilities took took over, and a few tunes started coming coming out and I thought that this wasn't you know this isn't what got me going or it's not my intention or but maybe I should you know if a tune presents itself I, I felt I would be foolish just to ignore it because I'd put a, a rule in place that there would be no tunes um so there's a longer I spent at the piano the more little melodic elements come out and I thought well maybe I could combine the texture element with the the melody and it, it just it just seemed to come out that way very very naturally um yeah and and so that was my main focus for the record that came out in 2021 um based on that i'm, I'm now trying to uh, start another one and i have some ideas but i'm very i've not got enough to start yeah, I, I need I, I I need restrictions. I need um some rules like the last time. The rules are just the piano and just tones, but then you can break them. And I think I can't remember who said that the maxim that if you if you end up somewhere that you thought you would end up at the start, then you weren't listening along the way. But I I like I like that idea, but I still need a. I still need a starting restriction, I think, of just just what, what it means and what, what it is for me. And I've been a bit obsessing with um, Robert Bresson, the French filmmaker. Have you seen Thanks. many Robert Bresson films? And he didn't make many films, but I've been reading his, he's written a couple of books and, and I've, I, I don't know why, just a gut feeling that I, I, I think his writing and his films will give me something or so I, I've been going through his catalogue of films this last month and doing some writing on them and I don't know if it would be I thought maybe there's a film that I think because he was so sparse with score and had very mm -hmm. like strict strict rules about that his own rules um of that he always felt music fictionalized so he didn't really use music at all but he had very interesting sound design or would maybe use classical music to represent nobility when in certain certain scenes so his, his films are very sparse but i find them very emotional as well and and in context of today's filmmaking i find them even more interesting because there's nothing quite like that just now for filmmaking and 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 the score or certainly the popular score is going down another route um so i i don't know what that what that means for my my next record but just i think some of his ideas are maybe absorbing them and and then i'll see what happens i know i want the piano to be involved again but i don't want to sit down and make the same like the same process so right. I, I, trying to find a way in that that's that, that's the thing i find difficult these days it seems to me that yeah 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 that your music that you're making most recently is as much about uh, ideas as it is about the music itself. You know, you're looking for ideas that will, uh, you know, you many times you've said 
uh, restrictions or things or that, you know, that you'll put on yourself, even going right back to when we we're talking about screen music, you know, challenges, I guess, is what I'm looking at. You're almost looking for challenges. Yeah. Creatively. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I think there's something I'm not a, a producer in that sense that I'm not a, a gear obsessive. I, I kind of want the technology to be invisible. Right. Almost. And I, I think again going back to I think I've just been reading too much Robert Bresson, but he he's, he shot every film with a fifty mil camera and his his whole career, and and his his reasoning was that, you know I th I think his resources as his he said if if his resources grew his ability to use them diminished, and I, I like that idea of of restrictions and just having your own idea and aesthetic and trying to hone into into something rather than i don't know having everything open i'll just i could choose like you see maybe there's a, a i've got a couple of synths that i use for particular things i've got the well it's a piano my piano's over this side i've got the guitars up there but i don't have a huge um technical pro studio space and i like to i i think my reason for going back to study was, was i think you get closer to music if you can think about it in your in your head rather than like I felt a bit guilty trying to be a composer as a more a songwriter or somebody that sits down at the piano or grabs a guitar and, and comes up with something rather than rather than a kind of flight of imagination that that, that if you just sit down and, and work on paper or do some writing or scribble some notes or imagine a sound that can be much more freeing, I think, than getting into your tropes of sitting at the piano or maybe getting drawn to your favorite key or you know different different things so yeah it's, it's all about for me starting my own projects is increasingly difficult yeah. and i think that comes from working in theater and film where, where the catalyst is provided so yeah. you work with a film like alistair's great you work with rachel or ride the wave you've got a protagonist and you've got the sea and and that's that's almost a, a dream for me because you've got the, there's your your subject matter so you can go and do as much research as you like then you you make your own rules up and go for it when i'm free like to my own devices i'm thinking i'm looking for something do i want to use a book as inspiration a film or like i find or or just kind of like like most artists it's like a kind of half you kind of half feeling your way through something on a on a gut feeling yeah. and you don't really know where it's going but you just have a gut feeling that you should move in this particular direction or 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 another and i think um yeah own music just now i have a few short films i'm working on and that's um distracting me enough just now and I, I will get get back to my my own writing again uh, very soon and going back to your music in films you had music in films from quite early on because people were picking them up for soundtracks particularly i'm thinking of vanilla sky and the looper song the looper the looper stuff that I, that that was probably 20 years maybe more more than 20 years ago now and we had written the um, second album, The Geometrid, and and then very quickly we found out it, it had been released on Sub Pop in, in the States. And I mean, none of us, I'm not sure if Stuart, Stuart has written film music. I think he's done bits and pieces, but back at that time, our concern wasn't with, you know, my concern wasn't certainly with thinking about being a, a film composer. All we wanted to do was write songs and tour and release release records. And Cameron Crowe had the way I believe it came around is he 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 liked the record and he was playing it on set. So in scenes with with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz and Penelope Cruz, um, and then when it came to cutting the film, two tracks stayed in, you know, mm -hmm. from the the temp and then we got the main track in the trailer which was a a boon 
I don't think there's any way people say to me now, like, you know, I, I say I've kind of I'm I'm regressing in scale and, and my career. I started off in, in Hollywood and now I'm kind of working back. But um I don't think there's any way of making that kind of serendipitous yeah happen again it might happen if somebody could pick up a track from MD there's plenty of bands and songwriters that have you know songs placed in ads or or mm. films and it's a nice thing when it when it happens but I don't think you can you can't aim for it you can't expect it to happen you just have to write the music you want to write and put it out and if it happens then so be it but it can be such a it's it's difficult for you i feel for young bands like to make to make a living selling music is almost i would say impossible now i don't know with the streaming platforms um so if, if you're doing live things and selling cds and merch and have a certain following maybe you can make a living but if there's four of you in a band or more it's, it's very difficult and i've got friends who are successful bands that tour tour worldwide and and you know, just uh, doing the maths of if you if you're flying to say Japan to do a couple of of dates with band and crew, then it's difficult. It's really difficult. A couple of uh, film festivals ago, it must have been quite a, quite a while ago. I was talking to someone who was involved in a film, and they had been a member of the Polyphonic Spree. And I really wanted to ask, how did you ever make any money touring the world with this huge band of people? But you're right. I think it's increasingly uh, uh, difficult. And I also think that time where, when Vanilla Sky soundtrack, Cameron Crowe was making movies that were always stuffed with great music. And so were a lot of other people that seemed to, now I think we're back more to maybe composed soundtracks rather than the pop soundtrack, for want of a better word. Yeah, yeah, I know that, that pop soundtrack seemed to explode about that early late nineties, and and there was a few of them. Cameron Crowe was probably a big a big part in in that. Maybe less so now. A film like um, well, Thomas Anderson, uh, Licorice Pizza. Yeah. Um, like last year was a great pop soundtrack, but then still, I think he still had composed. There was a main theme that Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. Was, still a bit composed for it so it, um but i think if you get the right composed music i think it's hard to it's hard to beat if, if it's done if it's done well and I, I think a lot of filmmakers you know feel feel that unless you're wanting to set it like like licorice pizza if you unless you want to set it in a certain time and place then then maybe the pop music of the day plays a big part in that well scott it's been really great talking to you i thanks so much for taking the time to do it You're welcome i enjoyed it it's great and uh, we'll be back soon with someone completely different mm -hmm.